We're looking at lessons from uh, the Old Testament, and particularly, particularly lessons that are, uh, I think, steeped in connection to the law. And um, seeing what we can learn from those is the uh, title of the series for this weekend is Lessons from the Tutor. That's what Paul refers to the law as in the book of Galatians. It was a tutor to lead us to Christ. And I think perhaps tonight we'll see maybe more of that uh, in this first lesson, or as much in this first lesson as any of the other lessons. We'll see some of those connections. Leviticus is a book of the Bible where many a well-intentioned Bible reading plans goes to die. People start the year with good intentions and they're reading through Genesis and the stories are approachable and understandable and linear and easy to follow. And then we pick up an Exodus and things are exciting and plagues. And then we hit about chapter 25 and there's the description of the tabernacle in great detail. And you think just about when you could not stand to hear another measurement you do get some more excitement and you've got a disappointing series of events with Israel uh, worshiping a golden calf. And so for two or three chapters, you've got narrative again. And then in chapter 35, we are right back to building the tabernacle. And so we hear repeated all the things we just heard. And, and now they're putting into action those. I really think that doesn't have to be as boring as you might think it is, but, but it can seem that way. And so you think, well, I made it through that. So I open up Leviticus, and what do we find? We find instructions on how to offer sacrifices. And God does not make quick work of that. He tells them one sacrifice after another, one detail after another, and the repetition is, um, it can feel monotonous. And you think, didn't I just read a paragraph that says this? Right, right. So right off the bat, you're reading about the burnt offering, and it's telling you how to do this with a, with a bull, or, or um, and and then you think, okay, got that down. And he says, all right, let's. Uh, what if you got a sheep? Well, do the same thing. But he doesn't say do the same thing. No, he literally repeats all the words. But now do it with a sheep. And so you you can feel like, what am I supposed to get out of this? Right? What's the point in me reading this? I mentioned this morning in our uh, breakfast study that I had gone to Brother Waldron and asked him to tutor me and be a mentor to me. And the same with, uh, with Tom Holly. And so when Brother Waldron told me what I needed to do, what he told me was there, was, there were 1,189 1, chapters in the Bible and all I needed to do was figure out what was in all of them. And so that's, that's it. Just do that. You'll be fine. And I said, well... I mean, like, do you mean by memory? Like I could just tell you right off the bat what's in every chapter of the Bible? And he said, yeah, that's what you need to be working towards. So okay. I said, well, what about, what about some of the places where, I mean, things seem less applicable? To, could we kind of group some chapters? Like I said, could we just say about Leviticus, that's the law? And he looked at me in the eyes and he said, Leviticus chapter 1 is the burnt offering. And Leviticus chapter 2 is the grain offering. And Leviticus chapter 3 is the peace offering. And Leviticus chapter 4, I said, enough. I got it. Even Leviticus. And he said, what you need to do is you need to go home and you need to study that book and you need to, you need to preach from that book. Because if you think that doesn't apply to you, then you don't understand it. You don't appreciate it. That's God's words 
And just like we said last night, they never stop being important. Even if, even if those sacrifices are not the sacrifices we offer, God was teaching something to them through those sacrifices and through all of those laws. Even the laws that get really strange sounding, the eating of meats in chapter 11, the chapters 13 and 14, we read some very exciting reading about skin diseases. And uh, chapter 15 gets even more disgusting when it talks about flows of blood and discharges and so forth. And you think, what does this have to do with me? God is teaching them something about holiness. He's teaching them something about the nature of sin, what sin is. We'll see some of that in the sacrifices here as we read through. He's teaching them that they can't be like the other nations that are around them because when he tells them some of the things that they can't do, why not trim the corners of your beard? What does that even mean? I'm not even sure what that looks like. Trimming the corners. We don't even have corners to our beards, do we? And so what does that what does that look like? And don't mark your body up. Sometimes we, we go to those passages and maybe misuse them to try to make a modern application. What is he saying? Don't be like those people over there. Doesn't God still want that? Doesn't He still want you to not be like those people over there? Be holy, for I am holy. Peter pulls that passage from chapter 19 and verse 2 and says, still the same thing God wants. Be holy, for I am holy. So we need to see that. We need to appreciate the blessings that God has given us by, by laying those foundations so that when we get to the New Testament, I'll tell you, I'll say this. When you, when you study the book of Hebrews, you can get something from that study. But when you go back and you study Leviticus after having studied that, you will wonder what you thought you understood about Hebrews. Because you'll start reading through Leviticus and you'll think, oh, I, I didn't understand any of those references. I thought I knew what he was talking about, making those references pointing backwards, but I didn't get it. One of the things we get from Hebrews sometimes... You, you probably heard this. The, the word that you take from Hebrews is better. You heard that before? Better sacrifice, be, better covenant, all those things. That's true. If that's the only thing you take from Hebrews, you need to back up. Because what he's not saying is that covenant was no good. Now we have a covenant that is good. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is we had a covenant that was good, was valuable, was profitable, allowed us to have a relationship with God and what we've done is built on top of that. And so it's superior in the way that a person is superior when they become an adult. Right? Looking at the child, you don't say, well, that child's worthless. No, a child's a child. It's limited. It's, its capacity is limited. There's only so much it can do. And we want to see that child grow up and be an adult. And we expect improvements in a lot of areas when they grow up to be an adult. And that's what you see between the law and the new covenant. You see the child version of serving God. We'll see some of that in these sacrifices. And then when we come to Jesus, what we, what we really need to see is a grown-up faith. That's what, that's what grown-up faith looks like. So let's make some of those connections. Let's begin here in Leviticus chapter 1 with that burnt offering. Um, and, and notice some things. We'll, we'll just look at the first three sacrifices here. Uh, the uh, burnt offering, the grain offering, and the sin offering. So, um, beginning here 
in chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. He shall slay the young bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall offer up the blood, and sprinkle the blood around the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And then he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. The sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the suet over the wood, which is on the fire that is on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer up and smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. And then he goes on, as I said, to repeat, if his offering is from the flock, uh, the sheep, uh, or uh, of the sheep or of the goats he shall offer to male without defect and then he continues to repeat much of what he said at the end of the chapter though he says in verse 14 if his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds then he shall bring his offering from the turtle doves or the young pigeons the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and, the, and offer it up and smoke on the altar and his blood is to be drained out on the side of the altar and he shall Take away its crop with its feathers and cast it behind the altar eastward to the place of the ashes. Shall tear its wings, but shall not sever it. And the priest shall offer it up and smoke on the altar on the wood which is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. When you read through just uh, some initial observations, the first observation is this. Why three animals given? you got bull, you got the sheep or goat, and then you've got the turtle dove. And idea, it seems uh, clear not only from this passage, but as we continue to read through other laws of sacrifice throughout the, the um, text of Leviticus, that what's happening is God is making provision for everyone from every social standing, from every financial situation. Sometimes we look at the law and we see harshness in the law. And there is some harshness in the law. But what we also see is God has always made it possible for anyone who wants to approach him to approach him. If all you can go do is round up a pigeon and come over here and worship God, then you do that. I'm not expecting everybody to have access to a bull or a sheep or a goat. I'm going to make it so that anybody, even poor people, can come and worship God with nothing to offer but a bird that you could find anywhere on the side of the road. It's this very uh, situation, this very lineup of animals that lets us know the nature of, of Jesus' parents' social status. Because when they came to make an offering for their firstborn, for Jesus, it is this turtle dove offering that they offer there at the temple. And so that tells us something about his parents. We don't really get another indication. I mean, we know that, that Joseph's a carpenter, but we don't have another indication of that except knowing something about the sacrifices and saying, oh, that's, that's the category they fall in, the lowest category. And so that tells us something about the, the nature of their approach to God. Well, let's go back and let's look at these first couple of verses here and, uh, and note a couple of things there about the offering. Um, it says, um, when you bring your animal, 
it is, uh, he says, to be a male without defect. Now, I don't know if we have any cattle men in here. I don't think we do have any cowboys among us. But anybody who's ever had any association with people who deal in cows, you know where the value is. The value's in the bulls. The value's in the, the males. Why? Because they produce more. Right? You're going to get one, one more cow per year from the heifers. And you're going to get a lot. You, you might have one bull for 25 to 50 heifers. And he is producing all of those children. And so the value is in the male. So what does God say? Give me your most valuable animal. Right? A male. Not only a male, but a male without defect. So I don't want your cast-offs. I have a friend um, who was in the cow business for a long time. And, um, and his grandson and I are, are close and so his grandson was telling me that one particular year they all got a lot of beef because one of his cows, and it was a, a, a pretty uh, uh, a, a prized cow that he could have gotten a lot of money for, it got into the brambles and um, it, some brambles got in its eye and tore its eye out. And so it looked awful. And, and he said it looks diseased. And I know if I take it to market that's what people will think about it. And so its value is at the very least cut in half of what it would have been, maybe even more than that. And he said, so he just butchered it and gave it to the family, right? And so everybody got extra beef that Christmas. So you, you could see that temptation, come and bring a sacrifice. Well, there's the one that got over there in the bushes and tore himself up. I, I'll give God that. God says, I won't have it. I won't take that. I want you to pass that one up. You take the loss on that. You, you bring me what would be valuable to you the male and the one that doesn't have any blemishes and so what God is asking for is devotion seriousness conviction I want you to be serious about your relationship with it should be costly to have a relationship with God and so he demands that uh, of these people well what else do we see there uh, he shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that it may be accepted before the Lord you got to go pick out a good animal. And then, not only have you got to pick it out, you got to take it over there. Go take it to the doorway of the tent of meeting. And then as you read on, not only have you got to hand deliver the animal, he, the one doing the delivering, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on its behalf. Still part of the process. He shall slay the young bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And so, you've got to take your own animal over there. You are the one that's got to put your hand on the head. I think there's some representation there. This is the one bearing your sins. This is the one who's taking your place, as it were. You've got to take your knife. You've got to reach around there and slit that animal's throat as they catch the blood from it. And you've got to skin the animal and so forth and so it's a very hands-on process and when it's done it must have been quite the sight I, I'm not a butcher I don't want to be a butcher I'm not even a hunter I don't, I'm not opposed to it in fact I, I'm glad other people do it and then send me the meat that's what I like but I don't like to get my hands dirty in all of that I don't want blood up to my elbows that's what's going on here 
The word here for sprinkle, it's probably a, a poor way of translating that because the idea is maybe slosh would be a, a better English word. They're catching it in a bowl and they're splashing it up against the altar. It's a mess. It's a mess. Can you imagine? 603,550 people have left Egypt. The number of sacrifices and the amount of blood. The amount of blood on the day Solomon is dedicating the temple when it's tens of thousands of offerings being offered. and He couldn't have even fit them all on the main altar. I don't know what all they did there, but uh, it must have been an impressive sight. But the blood, the blood, it's really on your hands. You just had to kill that animal yourself. And the sloshing of the blood. The first time that I was working on this sermon, I was telling about it and talking about it in front of my girls, and they just went, Oh, gross. And I said, Yes, it is. The idea, I think that what God wants us to see, this is sin. Blood on your hands. There is an, there's an aspect of the law that I think that we, we fail to see the, the value and the privilege of being under the law. We need to see blood on our hands. But we, we have to see it without it literally being there. They got to literally look at it. And I'm not saying I really want to go back there. But there was something of value to being able to physically see what sin looks like. You know, see a physical representation of it. Here's blood on your hands. The smell. Look, butchering animals is not a pleasant thing. What's supposed to be? You're not supposed to walk away from that thinking sin is no big deal. You're supposed to walk away feeling the weight of it. And, and, and trying to wash it off. And all of that. And so there's, there's a real physical sensation uh, that is associated with sin here. And God says to us, in our grown-up faith, I need you to think about that. I'm not going to make you dip your hands in the blood anymore, but I need you to think about that. It's sort of the way that we teach little children's Bible classes versus the way we teach when we get older. In little kids' classes, we do all sorts of hands-on activities, and we ask them to get up and, and march around and do things of that nature because that's the way children learn. They need that sort of a thing. But if you walked into a college classroom and your professor asked you to do that, you would say, excuse me, we are grown up. We, we shouldn't have to have that. And God should be able to say, realize with your heart what I used to demand real intangible ways. And so realize that there's blood on your hands when we think about the sacrifice and we think about the atonement that has been made for our sins. He puts that onto the altar then and the, uh, the smoke goes up into the air and they watch the smoke rise. And it is as if their sins are being taken away with that smoke. There's another thing that I think we need to appreciate about all of this and that is that there's, there certainly would have been some aspects that wouldn't have been very pleasant but at the end of, the, uh, at the end of each of these descriptions of burnt offering it says that it, it would be a a, a pleasing, a soothing aroma to the Lord. Sometimes our worship to God may not be as pleasant to us as it is to Him. 
And I think we live in a world full of people who want to make sure that worship is pleasurable to us before they're concerned about whether it's pleasurable to God. I can think of so many reasons I would not want to engage in this worship right here. But God is saying, it's what hits me right here. It's what I love. I think about that. I think about that when we're when our singing is off key. When uh, our prayers are not as coherent as we would like them to be. When um, when we gather together in ways that the world just shakes their head and says, "How do you get anything out of that?" Because I know God's smiling on what we're doing. Right? I know this is the temple of God. And I know He takes more pleasure in this than I'm able to physically understand. It's what brings Him joy. And so I come and I give everything I have to that worship. Not, I hope some, I'm not saying it doesn't bring me joy. But what brings me most joy is to consider God's end of the stick. And so, that's what they need to consider in this case. Well, let's go over to chapter 2 and the grain offering. Now, when anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. And he shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, and shall take it, uh, and shall take it from, uh, from it, his handful of its fine flour and its oil with all its frankincense. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke as its memorial portion on the altar, an offering by fire of soothing aroma to the Lord. The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons, a thing most holy of the offerings to the Lord by fire. Now when you bring an offering of grain, of a grain offering baked in an oven, it shall be of unleavened cakes, a fine flour mixed with oil, or unleavened wafers spread with oil. If your offering is a grain offering made on the griddle, it shall be a fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall... Break it into its bits and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. Now, if your offering is a grain offering made in the pan, it should be made of fine flour with oil. When you bring in the grain offering which is made of these things to the Lord, it shall be presented to the priest, and he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take up from the grain offering its memorial portion and shall offer it in smoke on the altar as an offering of fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons, the things most holy of the offerings to the Lord by fire. No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. For you shall not offer up in smoke any leaven or any honey as an offering by fire to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits you shall bring them to the Lord, but they shall not ascend for a soothing aroma on the altar. Several things that we can note from this sacrifice. First of all, some of your translations might say that this is a meat offering. That is, I think that's the King James, that is uh, an old way of using the word meat. Um, it is the very opposite, in fact, of meat. Um, it's, it's, uh, it really means a meal offering is what it means. But it absolutely was grain. I mean, you read the description, it's grain. And so meat in, in 1600s meant a meal, right? And so that's the idea. You're bringing food uh, for an offering. And it is, as we just noted at the end of that reading the first fruits. Give the, the first of what comes in over to God. There's symbolism in what's supposed to be offered. So you, you offer it with salt and oil. Those are preservatives. Those are, those, uh, are preservatives and purifiers, salt is. 
not honey and not leaven. Those are corrosives, right? They break down and they corrode things. And so uh, there seems to be a, an association there of leaven and sin that we will see repeated over and over throughout the New Testament and then uh, Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, Paul picks that up and, and Jesus picks it up and they use that as well. And so you wonder where that comes from. Well, all the way through, God is associating things for them. And, and so leaven is associated with that corrosive influence. So there's a, a purity to this offering. Incidentally, and here's a, a something to note about, is here in Leviticus 2, he says, you shall bring an offering of the honey, you shall bring an offering of the leaven, it's just that it didn't go on the altar, right? So it's not like God is saying those things are sinful in and of themselves. He just says there's a characteristic about them that is like sin, and so I want it separated out. This helps us understand a little bit about clean and unclean things. Sometimes we think uncleanness because of how Leviticus talks about it. We might think uncleanness is sin. Uncleanness is not sin. Uncleanness teaches us something about sin. Right? And so what, what we learn as we look through the laws of uncleanness is that we, we recognize, God says, the things that decay dead bodies the things that are dirty these animals that are bottom feeders pigs who eat the dead things birds that eat carrion that eat roadkill that when you see that and you you have that sense of ugh, I want you to think of sin and so he teaches us about sin through uncleanness. The same thing here. He says those, those, those elements have associations. I'm not saying you can't eat honey. I'm not saying you can't eat leaven. But I want you to understand there's a separation that needs to happen of corrosive things and worship. And I, I, I want to include this then in that thought. That is that there are some things that are not unrighteous in and of themselves. They just may not have a place in the worship to God. And God says that several times. He says there are things that are profane. When God uses that word, it's not like we use that word. We use that word as something that is awful, that's terrible. What God just means is it's common. It's not holy. It's not been set apart for the worship of God. It's not a bad thing in and of itself. It's just not appropriate for worship. I think of instruments. Nothing wrong with instrumental music. We, it's, it's, a, it's something that God has given us as a blessing. But he hasn't asked us to bring that to him for worship. Somebody says, well, God God is pleased with music. He absolutely is. And yet he said, this is how I want you to come to me and worship. And so what do I say about that? I say that's, that's a good thing for common use. But it's not been set apart in our covenant for holy use. So I respect that. I respect what God asks us to bring to him. And I don't try to spice up his offering the way that I would enjoy it. I want his offering to, to go up to him like he wants it. This sounds like a pretty plain flower cake, doesn't it? It's not what I would make, but it's that what God's asked me to make. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring that. Well, another thing that we can note from this offering is the, the very word itself, grain offering, is a Hebrew word, minka. The, the word minka is used several times throughout the Old Testament. It has lots of connotations. Um, one place in which it's used is Genesis chapter 32 and 33. 
And in Genesis chapter 33, perhaps you recall that Jacob is returning from his exile. And last he heard, Esau was going to try to kill him. And he hears that he's approaching Esau. And so he divides up his company of, of family and so forth into three parts. And they go on with gifts before him so that hopefully Esau will be good and buttered up by the time he gets there and, and he won't kill him. Those gifts that he sends him are this word, minka. That helps us a little bit. So what does he want? He, he, wants to, he wants to appease Esau. He wants to have a favorable audience with Esau. So we see that. Another place that it gets used is in the tributes that are sent to Solomon. As Solomon uh, is raised up to a very prominent king and he's receiving tributes from all over the world. Those tributes are described by this word. What do people mean when they send a tribute? What they mean is... You're bigger than I am. And when you send in tributes, what you're saying is, uh, I am, I'm, a, I'm showing allegiance to you, not the other way around. You're up here, I'm down here. If we were on the same plane, we'd be sending tributes to each other maybe. But it wouldn't be this one-way street. And so people show that they hold Solomon in a higher regard and, and say, you are above us. Another place where we see this word used, very interesting place, is in the book of Judges when, when, uh, when Ehud wants to have an audience before Eglon. Do you remember that story? It's my favorite story from the Judges when I was a little boy because, I mean, honestly, that's a fun story when you're eight years old and blood and guts, literally, right there on the floor. So you read through that story, where does this word possibly fit in there well Eglon or uh, Ehud rather sent a gift on before him so that he could have an audience with Eglon and that's this word Minka and so when you want to be able to speak with somebody who is over you in authority when you want to show favor to them because you want them to show favor to you and and you recognize that they are up here and you are down here it's a it's a humble thing to send on and so what we're doing is we want we want to have an audience before the one that we are a favorable audience before the one that we're coming to that's this word grain offering you want to have a favorable audience with god and so you submit this grain offering. You recognize he's the reason you have these things. You recognize he's up here. I'm down here. You recognize that I don't deserve a favorable audience. And so you send all of these things before you so that perhaps you can come into his presence. Well, then we come to the peace offering in chapter 3. Peace offering. It says there, if his offering is a sacrifice of peace offerings... If he's going to offer out of the herd, whether male or female, he shall offer it without defect before the Lord. So we still got it without defect, but now we're not as concerned about the gender of the animal. He shall lay his hand on the head of the offering and slay it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall sprinkle the blood around the altar. In the sacrifice of the peace offerings, he shall present an offering by fire to the Lord, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails. The two kidneys with the fat that is on them, which is on the loins, and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall offer it up and smoke on the altar, on the burnt offering, which is on the wood that is on the fire. It is an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. 
And what you see as you continue on is that the other part of the animal, so here, the fat, the kidneys, and the liver, they go on to the altar, and the rest of the animal, you sit down and you eat. And the idea is that you are sitting down and having a meal with God. You're eating this part, he's consuming that part, and so you, you're at peace with God. That's what having a meal means. I don't think we appreciate that near as much as people used to. When you sit down to have a meal, that means we are, we are in good standing with each other. That's why Paul's able to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when we're not in good standing, don't eat with that brother. Because what you're communicating to him is that everything's fine. And so what this means is everything's fine. But to begin with, note this. How did we get here? Well, the first thing is we made atonement. Because you can't even begin to have a conversation about being okay with God if we don't have atonement. So we start there. Then secondly, we, we bow down before him and we say, You are first. And I don't deserve an audience with you. We, we recognize his position and we, we open up that, that way of communication with thanksgiving. Now we're ready to sit down and have a meal with God. People get that utterly backwards. They want to sit down and have the meal first. Can't do it. Can't get to the peace offering, but that you come through these other paths first. And that's the same now as it was then. Well, another thing that we note is we're still giving the best to God. It is without blemish. But more importantly than that, notice the portions that are given to God. The fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the kidneys and the liver. Frankly, at this point, I'm like, yeah, God, if that's what you want, fantastic. Sounds good to me. I'm not going to be fighting with God over the liver. What is God trying to say there? First of all, that word fat is one that if you look up, it means, well, it means fat, literally. But in the way that they would use that word, it meant the best. They would say the fat of the land. They would say uh, the, the fat or the choicest. And so that word will, will be translated best and choicest. And so what, what God is doing is taking the way they use the word fat and say, you give me the fat literally, but in, in the thought process, it's God gets the best, right? Now, what about this lobe uh, of the liver, the liver and the kidneys? Well, in that case, again, if you'll go through and you'll read through Proverbs and the Psalms especially, the, the kidneys and the liver and uh, sometimes the word bowels are, are used to communicate the emotional center of a person, all right? We say heart. That's what we say. And so very often that's the English word that you'll read, but almost never does it actually say heart. Usually when you're reading heart, it's saying kidney or liver or bowels or something like that. But in our mind, that doesn't have the same connotation, and so they translate it into the English word heart because that's what makes sense to us. It would be weird if we were saying, God, I love you with all of my bowels. Or if we say, I devote my kidneys to you, O oh God. We just don't have the ring to it, right? And so they change it around for us so that it sounds more natural. But what is God saying? Essentially, when he says, I want the liver, and when he says, I want the kidneys, what he's saying is, I want the heart. Right? I mean, that's how we would put it. Give me the fat, the best. Give me the heart, the part that means the most. 
And so you put that on the altar and you give that part to God. And in essence, what you're saying is, that's what we give to you, God. And we take this portion for ourselves, the rest of the meat that would be on the animal, and that's what they would eat as their peace offering. And that's, that's what our relationship to God needs to be like. We get the parts we need, but He gets the best. And, and the deepest parts of who we are are given over to Him. Well, what kind of connections can we make? I hope you're already seeing them. I hope you see, first of all, the, um, the connections between the atonement. And that Jesus fulfills all of those qualifications. He is the Lamb without blemish. He is our Passover Lamb. As the Passover Lamb would meet the requirements of the burnt offering, incidentally. Though it would be taken sort of as a peace offering. And uh, how, how do we find atonement through His sacrifice? How do we find an audience with God through His sacrifice? And through His continuing to be an advocate for us. We come to God through Jesus. How do we have a, a peace offering, a meal with God? We do that every Sunday. We have our meal with God through the sacrifice of Jesus. Do you get a sense of, of why the Hebrew people would be so shocked to hear that one sacrifice would take care of everything? For them, the thousands of sacrifice that they had witnessed, and not just that they had witnessed sacrifices, but sacrifices for all these... We haven't even gotten to them all. We still have the sin offering and the guilt offering, and we have offerings that are specifically for the priests and, and for other specific aspects of... of guilt and sin and so forth as you continue to read through the, the rest of Leviticus. And so, and so to hear the Hebrew writer came, come and say Christ is, has made this sacrifice once for all. Are you, are you crazy? One sacrifice? Not possible. Not possible. What that needs to help us appreciate is that the Hebrew writer is not, is not extolling Jesus by by putting down the law. He's not saying the law is pitiful and so Jesus is wonderful by comparison. What we need to appreciate is that Moses was a glorious person who had more glory than really anybody who ever lived. Nobody had a relationship with God like Moses. And the law he gave was good. That's what Paul says about it. The law is good. And this was good. This was a good relationship. So we don't exalt Jesus by diminishing the law we exalt the law and then we recognize Jesus is that much better than it and so the exaltation is even greater the more we appreciate the law the more we exalt Jesus because he does stand above the law and he does stand as greater than the law but he stands as greater because of that foundation of the law and so we don't look backwards sometimes people say well, I don't want to study the Old Testament because I want to study about Jesus you don't understand the Old Testament if you think studying the Old Testament is not studying Jesus. When Jesus was on the road to Emmaus, he, it says that He told those men, He went back and showed them the things concerning Himself beginning with Moses and the prophets. Jesus is on every page of this book. And He's all through these sacrifices. Can I show you one more thing along those lines and then, then the lesson will be yours. I have a, a whole lesson I like to devote to this point that I'm about to make, but 
uh, our time runs short, and so I'm just going to, to briefly make this point. In Romans chapter 12, there's a shift. The, the, the entirety of the book has been making arguments about the Jews and how they, they need to turn their attention from the law to Christ. That the old system, the, the system of, of Jews by birth, by birthright, by circumcision, salvation by any of those means is out the door. And it's in Christ that you're going to find salvation. It's the only way you're going to find salvation. And so that kind of carries all the way through chapter 11. And a lot of people think that when we get to chapter 12, what we do is utterly shift away from the conversation and just, just change subjects completely. I don't think that's what's happening. I think rather what we find is that he, um, he, he makes some unexpected arguments. Um, Beginning in verse 1, he says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So he, he, he says, you've got to come with sacrifice. Why? So that you can be acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Well, look back over to Leviticus chapter 1. In verse 3, if his burnt offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. Paul is not picking words at random. Paul doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. What does he do? He says, you've got to sacrifice. Why? For the same reasons you've always had to sacrifice. Now the thing that you're bringing to the altar is you. Really was always supposed to be you. But now I've taken away. You know, there's no more confusion. I've moved the bulls out of the way. It's you. That's what I want. You to bring me yourself. For the same reasons that you've always brought sacrifices. Incidentally, as he goes on in chapter 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. All those words of good and acceptable and perfect are found throughout the book of Leviticus. But as you get past the sacrifices that really end uh, and the sacrifices in the priesthood in chapters 9 and 10, you open up chapter 11, and that begins the, the very next topic of Leviticus, of the law, which is holiness. You be holy. You be separate from the world. So Leviticus has a pattern. You start with sacrifice. Then you separate yourself from the world. Sounds like Paul's taking up the same pattern. He's saying you start with sacrifice. And then you separate yourself from the world. Thirdly, we get over to Leviticus chapter 19. And we see that it begins giving them commands about how they should treat others. And essentially those commands fall under one, one command that is given and that Paul reiterates in, in Romans chapter 13. Verse 9, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Can I, can I suggest to you that we need to see that Jesus is the perfection of what the law was trying to teach? Jesus doesn't come and say, hey guys, you don't need this part anymore. Just rip that part out and move on. No, He says, this, Jesus... What we see in Him is a visual representation of what the law was supposed to be. And so He's moved all of the surface stuff out of the way 
the bulls and the goats and the turtle doves and the the clean and unclean rules about meats and and about touching dead things and all of that. And he scraped it all away and what's left? Well, same thing we're following today. Come to me and sacrifice. Separate your lives and be holy. And love each other like yourself. God's been saying the same thing the whole time. He's not changed. And He's not any different today than He was then when He was given these laws. He's not demanding anything different, essentially, than what He's always demanded from us. And so those sacrifices help us learn that. And they help us see that. They help us see not only that God is asking the same thing, but He's asking it in more and more clear ways. And, and we will get no more clarity than when He comes down to this earth and says, Guys, this is what I'm talking about. Watch me. This is how you do that. So, appreciate your good attention. We'll break for maybe 10 minutes. It's about 5 till. So about 10 minutes and then we'll, we'll have our next session.